Take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. We're picking up where we left off last week, at least as far as the passage. I'm going to go back and I'm going to cover a little bit that we looked at last week, just as far as uh, context for where we're going today. What we've been doing and what we are going to do for the next several months is we are going to look at the essentials of the faith. And what we've done, or what I've done, is I've taken our doctrinal statement, the essentials of within our doctrinal statement, and there is seven or eight of them, and we've already looked at that adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, love in all things. So we have a context of understanding when it comes to what is essential. And now we're one at a time looking at those actual essentials, and we have just begun looking at the actual essentials. So we're going to continue with that this morning. The essentials of the faith as listed within our doctrinal statement, remembering that these truths are non-negotiable truths which we adhere to and joyfully proclaim. And we said we have unity in essentials. It is those essentials which are matters of heaven or hell. They are truths that the Word of God declares to be essential in salvation and in living the life of faith. These doctrines are doctrines which, if denied, are a denial of the truth in which you are saved and in which you stand. So these doctrines are essential. These doctrines are for believers. This series is for believers. It is for the church, universal, but here, local, visible, gathering together the body of Christ. This is for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. This is for the one who has already heard of the glorious grace of God and has surrendered to him and trusted their life to him. These are matters not just for the individual believer, although they are, but they are also matters in which the individual believers are united together and are to endeavor to maintain or to keep, the Word of God tells us, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of love. That is what we're doing. We're examining these essentials. And the first essential that we're going to look at, we began looking at last week, is around the Word of God. I'll read it for you, as it is stated within our doctrinal statement and as I have begun to dissect already. The first essential of the faith. The Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That is the first essential of the faith. The Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning. Give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us discernment. We thank you that you have promised that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. And so we ask for a liberal outpouring of your wisdom by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would anoint us to understand and to receive the truth of your word. Grant us an appetite for it, and grant us a will to obey the truth of your word. May we bring our lives into line with it, and not through some effort that we think will gain us merit, not through some self-righteous deed, but because we love you. We ask that you would cause our lives to fall in line with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is not going to be an exhaustive look at each of the statements of the essentials of the faith, but an overview. We are simply saying this we hold to be true. And we believe that all genuine believers, those born again by grace through faith, hold these to be true as well, should hold these to be true. This truth unites us. 
Now, as we look at that first essential of the faith, I've divided it up into three points. We already began to look at that. First point, the Bible is the revelation of God. Second point, the Bible is truth. And the third point, the Bible is authoritative. Now, we worked halfway through that, almost halfway through that last Sunday, and I just stopped because it was too much. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to, in brief, I'll try to be brief, cover the Bible is the revelation of God and the Bible is truth, and then examine more thoroughly the fact that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is the revelation of God. We looked at this last week, but as a recap, this statement covers the first portion of that essential, the Holy Scriptures as originally given by God. The Bible is the revelation of God. First, there is the philosophical argument proving that the Bible is the revelation of God to man. There is a God who has created all that is. This God, by very definition of being God, must have purpose and intent. And since he created mankind with the ability to reason about purpose and intent and meaning, he must, because of his very nature, communicate. It would be nonsensical for the one creator God to not communicate purpose and meaning to the reasoning beings he created. So the God that exists must communicate. And the second part of that is that the communication of God must align with the character of God. And the word of God is the only holy text that aligns with the character of God who is and who has revealed himself in creation. That is a philosophical reason as to why the Bible is the revelation of God. We see as well other arguments for this. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God through its consistency. This is all just refresher. The Bible, containing 66 books within it, written over a span of 1,600 years by some 40 different authors, different backgrounds and education levels and cultures, is internally consistent. This is one story, and it is the story of Jesus Christ. Beginning to end, it verifies itself and does not conflict. Where there is perceived conflicts, that is what it is, perceived. This is the word of God. The accuracy, the Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God to man through its accuracy. The word of God has been challenged time and time again, but in every situation where it is verifiable, it has been proven to be accurate. Historically, geographically, scientifically, what it contains aligns with reality. This book is accurate in all that it says. That does not mean that it speaks to every area. It certainly doesn't, but in every area it speaks it speaks truth. It is accurate. The Bible proves itself to be the revelation of God to man through its prophecy. And this is a great one. This is a powerful one. When we look at prophecies from the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in history, we see there is no question that the source, the Word of God, is supernatural. There is no other possible explanation. Whether it was the rise and fall of nations, the events of battles, the conquest of cities, or over 300 prophecies of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament is so abundant and precise that it would be ludicrous to think that this happened by happenstance. Prophecy reveals that this is the revelation of God to man. That was under the first point. The Bible is the revelation of God. The second point was the Bible is truth. Because the Bible is the revelation of God, it must be true. It makes sense. It follows. If it is, and it is, the revelation of God, it must therefore be true. I want to examine three terms that are used in the statement of faith, the Holy Scriptures as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, and entirely trustworthy. And this is where we got halfway through. 
Last week, we looked at divinely inspired. Let's read the passage that we looked at again. So divinely inspired, I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, the most well-known verses around inspiration, verse 10 to the end of verse 17. Paul speaking to Timothy, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration of God literally means that it is God-breathed. These are the words of God. It is not as important how God accomplished that as the fact that he did accomplish it. The conflict over whether God gave the writer the exact words or God gave the writers the thoughts and they put it into the exact words is all a moot point. God would not, and because he is God, could not allow his communication to man to be flawed by the means of communicating it. It is the revelation of God to man. Remember, he is sovereign Lord of all. And when I say that, I'm speaking of the originals, okay? That they are fully God-breathed, both in thought and, I believe, in exact word. And God is big enough that he could put the character of the author into the writing of the books that he was writing. Paul recognized that what he was writing was inspired of God. That's evident here in 1 Timothy because of the instruction given to Timothy to continue in what he had learned, which included both the Old Testament scriptures and the instructions from Paul. It's further evident because Paul even transitions from holy scriptures in verse 15 to all scripture is given by inspiration of God in verse 16. I believe Paul included his writings as being inspired of God. He spoke what God revealed. He wrote what God revealed. Paul revealed in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, that by the revelation, he, that is God, made known to me, that is Paul, the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul wrote the revelation that was made known to him by God. This was not general revelation as it was not formerly known. This was uniquely revealed to the apostles and the prophets. Paul once again classes this revelation as inspired as the Old Testament prophecies were. Paul understood that he was inspired by God. Peter and the other apostles recognized this divine inspiration that was upon Paul and his writing. Peter classes Paul's writing alongside the rest of scriptures. It even uses that, like the rest of scriptures, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Suffice to say, this book is God's revelation. It is truth. It is divinely inspired. And because it is divine in its origin, and not just divine as in some God, small g, but because it is the very thoughts and words of the sovereign God of all, we can 
have absolute confidence in it. It is inspired, and because of that, it is, the next word, infallible. Infallible means it is without error. There's some discussion between these two words, inerrant and infallible. Technically, infallible is stronger than inerrant. Inerrant means it is without error, whereas infallible means it is incapable of error. However you look at it, the Word of God, because it is literally the breathings of God by His Holy Spirit through human authors, is in the original writings without error and incapable of error. If there is a God, and there is, and if this God communicates, and He has, then what He communicates will be perfect as He is perfect, and He will sovereignly intend over it so that it is perfect. The original writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the infallible words of God. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Right there in the middle of those verses, we see that God cannot lie, and that is repeated throughout Scripture. Since God cannot lie, and this is the revelation of God, we know that it is true. The Word of God is true. It is infallible. Now, that doesn't mean that the Word of God doesn't record lies. Certainly, it records lies, and it records adultery and murder and every other form of human depravity. But the Word of God, in recording all of those things, speaks according to actual reality. It is true. It is in line with. It is the expression of that which is reality. Jesus Christ affirmed that in John chapter 17, verse 17. There we see the prayer of Jesus Christ. And in verse 17, he is still praying for the disciples and apostles, those who were with him then. This is one of the things he prays in seventeen seventeen: Sanctify them by your truth. This is Christ praying to God the Father. Your word is truth. Jesus Christ understood that the scriptures were the word of God. Now, yes, he was the word incarnate. So he is the fullness of the revelation of God. But he understood, was Jesus Christ true? Absolutely. And he places that same emphasis upon the word, that the word of God, that God's words are truth. Jesus here in that passage was petitioning God to cleanse and to purify and to conform his disciples by the truth of God. And then he, come, he, he keeps going and he boldly proclaims, why do they need to be conformed by the truth of God? Because God's word is truth. Every word that proceeds from God accords itself with reality. It is true. This is the word of God. It is true. It is infallible. Another couple of verses which declare the word of God in the original writings is without error. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that he is true, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. If you miss everything else in that except for that it is impossible for God to lie, you're still doing all right. This is the word of God, and God cannot lie. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Time and time again, Old Testament and New Testament, we see that God cannot lie and that his word is therefore truth. We have utmost confidence that this is the infallible word of God. Because it is from God and is the truth of God, we are also confident that the word of God is entirely trustworthy. That is the third word. From cover to cover, the word of God can be trusted. God says what he means and means what he says. Isn't that a good thing? God says it. It's true. We can stand on it. We can and we must base our life upon it. Psalms 19, verse 7 to 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. I like that. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It is fixed. It is absolute. Making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And if you go on, God's testimony is sure. And it will come to pass, whatever he has said. It is entirely trustworthy. Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot and a tittle, the smallest dash on the letter, not the smallest dash or stroke of a letter, will fail from the law. Yes, we understand we have the progressive revelation of God. That is, God continues to reveal himself from Old Testament through to New Testament. He reveals things about himself that are different in the Old Testament or new, not actually different, new to us. It is progressive revelation. And yet it is entirely trustworthy. God is faithful to his character and so he is faithful to his word. It is absolute. That means it can be trusted. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, But as God is faithful... Our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God doesn't change. He isn't a shadow, but in Christ all the things prophesied and shadowed in the Old Testament are fulfilled. If God is faithful in this, he is faithful in all that he says. He is faithful to his word. His word is trustworthy. You can have supreme confidence in the word of God. That means you can rely on him and that every promise he promises will come to be. There is there's greatness in that. There's wealth in that. There's there's joy in that, that every promise he makes for the believer will come to be for you, the believer, as you trust in him by grace through faith. The promise of the resurrection from the dead, the promise of our hope to come, the promise of an eternal inheritance reserved for you, the promise of his grace to sustain you, the promise of his Holy Spirit to comfort you, the promise of wisdom to guide you, all of these promises he will fulfill, for he is trustworthy, his word is trustworthy. The Word of God is incredible. He is incredible. And His revelation is incredible. 
that God would choose to communicate with us. This is the revelation of God. It speaks of Christ and of the redemption for sinful mankind. It truly is the word of life. We affirm this essential statement in which we are united. The Holy Scriptures as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy. The second part, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. The first half, divinely inspired, infallible, and entirely trustworthy are good because we look at that and we, we come to a theoretical understanding that we can have confidence in who God is and what he has said. The second half of that is the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. This is a rough one. The first one was theoretical, maybe. The second part is very, very practical. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is too often where we fail in this essential of the faith. The Word of God. The only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. We affirm the Word of God, the Bible, is the only holy scriptures. We affirm it as given by God, technical sense in the original writings. We affirm that it is divinely inspired. We affirm that it is infallible. We affirm that it is entirely trustworthy. But do we affirm that it is a supreme authority? There are two areas in which it is stated the Bible is a supreme authority. First, in all matters of faith. And second, in all matters of conduct. There are many authorities today on many subjects. It doesn't seem like you have to be much of an authority to be an authority on a subject these days. Actually, Don Cherry is an authority on hockey. Al Gore apparently is an authority on global warming or climate change or whatever you want to call it. There's lots of authorities. Even in the faith or this faith or in evangelical Christianity, we have authorities. Billy Graham was an authority on evangelism. John MacArthur is an authority on Baptist doctrine. Matthew Henry was an authority on biblical understanding and I would say that his work rests in my mind as one of the greatest authorities for reference. These are some great people. John Bunyan, Martin Luther, Oswald Chambers, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on and on and on the list goes of incredible authorities of the Christian faith. These are remarkable people who have made remarkable contributions to our Christian walk, but they are only human. The Word of God is the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. As good as what they may say, as good as what they may have written is, we return to the Word of God. The Word of God God far exceeds all of those and every other great writer combined. This is not just an authority. It is the supreme authority. Men will rise and fall. They will ring true and they will make mistakes. They will never and they must never replace the word of God. We turn to it as the final authority, the final word on all matters of the faith. And I think that is vital for today because you can, at the click of a finger on a computer or on your phone, you can download authorities and incredible authorities on great subjects. Return to the Word of God. As great as they may be, I'm a big fan of some of them. We must return to the Word of God. Do not seek extra-biblical revelation to establish your faith upon. We must not do that. Absolutely seek those who are presenting and preaching the truth of the Word of God and listen to them, enjoy them, be challenged by them, be built up by them, edified, all of those things. That's good. 
but return to the word of God and seek to be built. Be certain that you are being built on the word of God. Throughout history, there have been many attempts to add to the word of God, and this must not be allowed to happen. We know it truly never can happen. They can't actually. But are we prone to permit it to happen in our lives regardless? We give place to man-made traditions, and these become as sacred as the Word of God. We give place to a good idea, which is outside of the Word of God, but give them equal preeminence to the Bible. We incorporate philosophies and mantras and tend to live our lives upon them rather than by the Word of God. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and scribes for doing that exact same thing. In Mark chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, speaking to them, he says, For laying aside the commandment of God... You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many such things. You do, he said to them. All too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. What a scathing rebuke. But isn't that so often a scathing rebuke to ourself as well? We reject the commandment of God to keep our tradition. Even good biblical traditions can supplant the Word of God if we are not careful. Even good, biblically-based creeds can supplant the authority of the Word of God if we are not careful. Westminster Catechism is incredible, but it is not a substitute for the Word of God, nor is the Apostles' Creed, nor is the Nicene Creed, or any other creed or statement of faith or doctrinal statement, not even the one that we're going through. It's a good statement of faith. This list of the essentials of the faith may even be a great statement. I'm impressed with EMCC's statement of faith. But that and no other one combined with it can ever come near the authority of the Word of God. Sure, memorize a creed, but memorize and live by the Word of God first. Supreme authority. Another area that should be addressed at this point is further revelation, which is something that we seem to deal with on a regular basis. Those who believe that God's Word is being added to on a continual basis. Does God still speak? Absolutely. He does, by His Spirit through our conscience. That is not authoritative, and we must never give that revelation, or whatever you want to call it, the authority of the Word of God. God guides us, God leads us, He prompts us, He convicts us, He directs us, all of these things. He is not silent, but He will never reveal anything contrary to this final authority. And He has revealed all that He has determined to reveal for all matters of the faith within His Word. We must not add to or take away from this book. And by that, I don't just mean I'm quoting from Revelation and it's just about the book of Revelation. We must not add to nor take away from the Word of God. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God is profitable. It is serviceable. It is suited to doctrine or teaching, correction, and for instruction of righteousness. It covers all areas for the child of God, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. The word is capable to mature us and to perfect us in every area of the faith, absolutely trusting in the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us as we immerse ourselves in it. But it is through the word of God, the expression of God, that we can be equipped for every good work. It equips us for everything that God wants us to do. He has saved us to do good works. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Before time began, God had a good work in in mind, in plan, in store for everyone who would trust Him. We are equipped to do that through the Word of God. 
Do not turn aside from this word. Do not accept an additive to it as an equal to it. Do not accept an alternate for it. It is the only supreme authority in all matters of the faith. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for it is neither received from man nor was it taught, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do not accept an alternative to the Word of God. Do not accept a diluted Word of God, a changed Word of God in that sense. Return to the authority of the Word of God. Do not turn away from this book. Do not turn to another gospel, which is not another but is a perverted substitute. Regardless of whether the idea comes from you or from someone you respect or from a great preacher or even this preacher, do not place any word over this word. Not even a message from an angel from heaven is superior to this word. The word of God is the final authority in all matters of the faith. The word of God is also the supreme authority in all matters of conduct. That one's even more painful for us. And this is a watershed of the Christian faith. In what I do, is this word the authority? In all I do, is this word the authority? I would encourage you to wrestle through that issue before conflict comes or before temptation comes. I would encourage you that as you yielded to Jesus Christ in salvation, and I pray that you have, that you have bowed your knee before him, owned him as Lord and Savior, and turned from your sin and trusted in his, in his grace and mercy, that as you yielded to him then, you yielded to his authority in the word of God as well, and we must remain there, yielded to the authority of his revelation. In some of the hardest conversations I've ever had with people in regards to issues of conduct, it has come back to that question. Are you willing to submit to the word of God? Are you willing to yield to the word of God? You may have reasons, and some of them good or seemingly justifiable, as to why you do not want to do such and such a thing, or why you do want to do such and such a thing, but... If the word of God speaks in that area, and it speaks on most, whether you like it or not, will you yield to it? In regards to the Christian and our conduct, I think that is one of the ultimate questions. And it needs to be established. Please have that established before that temptation hits you across the face. God has said this is right, or God has said this is wrong. Will I yield to him and to his word as the supreme authority, or will I yield to my flesh? Will I yield to this desire, to some external desire, whatever it might be? In regards to our conduct, we must bring our lives into line with the truth of the word of God. We must be willing to submit to its authority. Jesus Christ submitted to it. Listen to what it says in 
Luke chapter 24. This is the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where they meet Jesus and they don't recognize him. They're distressed. They're confused over what has taken place. It says, Then he, as Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They were slow to believe in all the prophets had spoken. They didn't really think that the Christ would have to go through such suffering and humiliation. And Christ says, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? This is what scripture said would happen. And Christ says, don't you think it's going to be fulfilled in me? Ought not the Christ submitted to the authority of the word of God? That even in that humiliation and that suffering, it was according to the authority of the word of God. How many times in the New Testament, speaking of Christ, does it say, so the scripture should be fulfilled, or that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets or by somebody else? I'm not certain the exact number of times, but I know that the word fulfilled is used 49 times in the New Testament in the New King James Version, and all but six or seven of them are referring to Jesus Christ. He submitted to the authority of God and recognized that the scriptures were the expression of God, so submitted his life to them as well. He recognized them as one and the same. This is a revelation of God. This is the word of God. So I will submit to God and submit to his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, Psalm 19. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Submit to the authority of God's revelation. Submit your life to God by submitting your life to His revelation. If you have any doubt in this, I would encourage you to take the time and to read through Psalm 119 and to consider it. But just one verse from there, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man, how can a young woman, how can an individual cleanse their way? How can you be pure before God? By taking heed according to your word. God's word. Want to walk a right path before God, a clean and upright and true path? It is only possible by heeding his word. The Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and of conduct. I realize this has been, it might be long for you, but it's still a brief overview of this essential statement of the faith. As I mentioned at the beginning, we could take months and even years looking at some of these single points this one is integral, though. And as we work through the rest, you'll see it's why it is so integral. And to a certain degree, all the rest of them flow from it. This, the Word of God, is the revelation of God to man. It is truth. It is authoritative. As originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, and entirely trustworthy, the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are the word who became flesh. You revealed God in areas we couldn't understand, we couldn't fathom, we couldn't see. 
And we have record of even that within the written word. And so we thank you that the word in flesh has now been presented through the written word. We thank you that we enter into relationship and not that, that this word, the Bible, becomes an idol. Not that this is holier than God or that this is all that God can do. But we do recognize that this is the revealing of, the revealing of the sovereign Lord of all. And that what you desire to reveal, you have revealed. Lord, cause us to see the importance, the vital importance of your word and of, of by your spirit bringing our lives into line with it. Forgive us for holding such a light view that we don't even take the time to hear and to see what you have, what you have spoken. We have placed so many other things before your word and we ask for your forgiveness. We thank you that your grace is more than sufficient to forgive in these areas. You have said you're willing and just. Even there, we go back to your word to know that you are willing and just to forgive for all sins and to cleanse us as we come and confess. Forgive us and cause us to begin to place priority upon the revelation of God to man. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.